I'd like to welcome to the platform now Phil Colgan, who is the uh, who is a senior minister at St George North Church uh, in the Carlton area in Sydney. That's right. Uh, yeah. Now, Phil, you've got a fairly complex thing happening there. There's six different congregations. That's right. So uh, St George North is made up of what was three former Anglican parishes that had all basically died, and we've been trying to plant congregations into these old churches. Okay. Uh, what's that area like demographically, mate? Who, who, uh, who lives in the St George area? Yeah, some people talk about multiculturalism. Uh, our area is truly multicultural. Uh, I think I was talking to the principal at my kids' primary school and uh, there's 37 languages spoken at home amongst the 960 kids at that school, so it tells you something about the area. Wow, yeah. okay. Have you, so what kind of mission initiatives have you been working on to reach such a diverse group? Yeah, I, I think we've been too slow to, to recognise the truth about our area, so there's a sense to which I think we, our church has grown by us just catching, frankly, the whiteies. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and we're, the, we're a big church in an area where there's not many big churches, so people come because we've got the youth group and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but we've realised we've actually got to reach our area. So in recent times, we've started a lot, a lot of easy English Bible study groups, English lessons that lead into Christianity Explained courses. This year, we changed our staffing uh, and uh, re put on a new worker, but then reallocated one of our other workers to focus a lot of his time just on easy English evangelism. That's his, his job. Yeah. Right. Very good. And praise God, we're starting to see a little bit of fruit. Excellent. Yeah. Please, mate, open Thank the you. scriptures for uh, us. Thank you for having me. I was, um, I'm not a particularly emotional guy, but I was a bit moved as Iggy was, uh, I've never met Iggy, but uh, when he was talking before, I grew up in Sunnybank. Uh, and when I went to school, there was one Chinese kid in the class and uh, his dad was the market gardener. It was just the quintessential Chinese person, you know, uh, and uh, it was an incredibly... Frankly, we were racist, but um, towards him. Uh, and now this area is Chinese, and I, I rejected the gospel because of the churches in Sunnybank. So to know that there is uh, a church doing what you're doing there is wonderful. Yeah. Um, I'm a uh, reasonably competitive person, uh, and now that I'm in my 40s, my competitiveness sadly has switched to my children. And um, uh, on their behalf, uh, and uh, so I get my anger out by watching Sam play rugby and that sort of thing. Uh, and I'm very competitive for my fourth child. This is my fourth child. Her name is Gypsy. We don't need a pole. We know the truth. Uh, can I tell you, though, that uh, getting a little white dog is the best evangelistic strategy we have ever come up with? Um, my wife, Victoria, I, I am, I've often say I am the fifth best evangelist in my house. Now I am the sixth best evangelist in my house. Uh, Victoria is by far a better evangelist than me. She worked out, if you take Gypsy for a walk, people will come and talk to you. Uh, and so she just goes for walks. She walks dogs with people. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, I come home and the person she walks the dog with on a Friday morning was there reading the Bible, doing the word one-to-one studies in John with her just from walking the dogs. So, you know, amazing. So anyway, I thought I'd give it a go last week. I took out Gypsy for a walk. It was working great. Ten minutes in and I had met two people who had been once or twice to our church and they'd come up and seen the dog and they'd say, hang on, you're the pastor. And they, and they said, oh, I will come back to church. Who knows if we'll see them or not. People say that to pastors. But anyway, then this old man uh, comes up and he goes to Pat Gypsy and she has never bit anyone before. And she bit this old man. Uh, it was just a nip. 
Uh, I told him I was the Roman Catholic priest. Uh, but, uh, I didn't really. I didn't, but, but I, I, didn't, I didn't tell him I was the local Anglican minister anyway. Uh, now, I've been trying to work out all night how I could fit Gypsy into Acts 12, but I can't. So open up, open up to Acts 12. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, I just started in ministry. Uh, I'd, just, I'd actually just become the senior minister at St. George North. Uh, and I went to a ministry conference and the speaker made a throwaway line uh, that has stuck with me. In talking about God's sovereignty, uh, he said, in his experience, every six months, something has happened that has made him think it's all over. Every six months, something has, has made him think, is this it? Is it going to all fall apart? Uh, and it rang true with me in your mind because you're so caught up with it. And truth be told, because we don't trust in the sovereignty of God enough. Uh, every six months, something will happen that just knocks the stuffing out of you uh, as a pastor, as a leader of God's people. Now, praise God if you're saying, no, 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 does, that doesn't happen to me. Well, praise God for you. Uh, and praise God if it's every 12 months or every two years, but the, but the point stands. Uh, it might be that you discover gross ungodliness in your leadership team. Uh, you might get kicked out of your building. You might get diagnosed with some serious illness your kids' church leaders all tell you they're finishing up and moving to the church where all the young people are going. Your, your biggest financial contributors tell you they're moving on. That's happened to me twice in my 16 years at St. George North, and each time it was exactly one week before I was announcing we had to lift our budget by 20% to put a new staff person on. Uh, it's amazing these curveballs are just sort of get thrown at you in ministry, and you think at the time, it, it, this is just going to set us back so far. How are we going to continue our momentum? How are we going to keep going? And you struggle to see how it's all going to work out. And as much as it would be nice to preach a sort of ministry prosperity gospel to you uh, that says that these things always work out well, sometimes they don't work out well. Uh, sometimes our fears are realised. Sometimes there are massive setbacks that have massive consequences. Sometimes it does kill all the momentum and it takes years to build it back up again. Sometimes the church does divide and half the people walk away. Sometimes we have to lay off good friends because we can't raise the money to keep them in the staff team. Sometimes we close the doors for good. These things are sometimes a reality in ministry. God does not promise that all faithful ministries will thrive. But having said that, it is amazing how often you look back in six months or you look back in 12 months and you think, actually, despite my fears, we didn't die. Uh, and actually, despite my fears, the church is stronger now. Despite my fears, other leaders have, have stood up who, who I was actually just too blind to see their gifts before. Uh, despite my fears, other people have stepped up in generosity and met those needs. And I'm not just meaning with hindsight, it wasn't as big an issue as you thought at the time. I'm not meaning why was I worried, because often it is a massive issue. You were right to be worried. No, it's actually God has used that crisis to strengthen his church. Uh, or at least God has continued to work despite that crisis. And that was the point that struck with me on that ministry conference all those years ago, and I hope you have lots more points stick with you from this ministry conference. Uh, but the speaker was making this point, don't just preach that God is sovereign to your people, Believe it in your ministry. God is sovereign. God is working for the good of his people. And even despite and often through the crises that hit us. 
And nowhere do you see that more clearly, I think, than in the book of Acts. So let's go there now. Uh, In one sense, there is a Christian triumphalism in Acts, a, a sense of God sweeping all things before his gospel and before his church. You, you get that famous summary if you go back to the end of chapter 2 after Pentecost where it says that day about 3,000 people were added to their number. Uh, then in chapter 4 it says the number of men came to about 5,000. I'd love to tell you that was last Sunday at St George North but I'd be slightly exaggerating. Uh, but that was the reality for, for this early years of the church, as you read Acts, you, you actually can't help but be caught up in the triumph of the explosion of the gospel. But then every time that you're tempted to think that's the full story, every couple of chapters, they hit a roadblock that must have seemed insurmountable to them in that moment. Where they must have thought, is this it? And remember, in Acts, it's not, is this it for St. George North? Or is this it for Whereverville Evangelical? Or, or is this it for Flourish Church, or whatever name you've come up with last? <laughs> it's, is this it for the gospel? It's, is this it for the church? Just think, when the first arrest that we heard about yesterday happened in chapter 4, what do you think they were thinking? When Stephen was martyred, stoned to death for claiming the name of Jesus. At every one of those moments, they must have thought, is this it? Is the party over? Which brings us to chapter 12, because our passage this morning is one of the biggest of those moments. Look at Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, about that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. This was Herod Agrippa, grandson of the Herod who killed all the two-year-olds, nephew of the Herod who killed John the Baptist. But the point is, this was not just the Jews and the Sanhedrin anymore. This was state-sanctioned persecution. And it tells us, look at verse 2, that he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. It's incredible how short and matter-of-fact that verse is, I think. He killed James, John's brother, with the sword. It's just so matter-of-fact for something that is so massive. Other Christians had been killed. James is not the first martyr, but this is the first of the 12 to be killed. More than that, it was one of Peter, James and John. It, it was one of Jesus' big three. Imagine the feeling that went through the church at this time. This is more than a stumble. Now, it seems Herod was doing this to win the favour of the Jewish leaders. Hey, they hate these Christians. If I kill a few, they might like me some more. And so if you look at verse 3, he gets on a bit of a roll. It says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. And that is the biggest thing, isn't it? He, this is Peter. He's put Peter in prison, guards everywhere, and the plan is, after the festival, he'll parade him out, have a show trial, and put him to death. It's almost impossible to overstate how dark a moment this is in the life of the church. Humanly speaking, they must have been thinking, is this the end? Has it all been for nothing? So what do they do? They pray. Our Bible reader before couldn't help herself at that point. She said, yes, as as she read that they prayed. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. And it's funny how often people say at this point, and I read it in a lot of the commentaries, uh, they make a big point how this is an example of when you have nothing left, you pray. When you realise you have no other options, you turn to prayer. They say, and the church did the only thing left for it to do. They prayed. I think that actually undersells what is going on here. I think it undersells the picture we're given of the prayerfulness of the early church in the book of Acts. 
So many of the descriptions, if you just read through, go home after this conference and read through all of Acts again, so many of the descriptions of the early church focus on the fact that they devoted themselves to prayer. Prayer was at the very heart of the early church. And if you just think for a moment, Peter has been in prison twice before. We saw one yesterday in chapter 4 and also in chapter 5. Now that was with the Sanhedrin, not with Herod. So it was a little less scary, but all the same, this is not something new for them. And the first time, back in chapter 4, what do we see yesterday? Peter does not back down. God saves him. He gets out and he says, what should the early church do? What should the church do? They should pray that we will have boldness and pray that God will do great things. Then he comes out and prays. So then they imprison him again in chapter 5. And what does God do? An angel releases him from prison. God has a bit of a track record here in the book of Acts. So when we come to chapter 12, I don't think this is prayer as last resort. This is a prayer knowing that God can do things. This is prayer knowing that God is powerful. Why would you not pray to God for Peter's release, given he's done it twice before? Whether they were confident in a result or not... Well, that's debatable, and you see when Peter knocks on the door, they don't believe it's him, and that says something. But even so, I think this was a church that understood reality, real reality. They understood that God works in answer to our prayers. They didn't see prayer as a, as a Hail Mary pass, if you'll excuse the expression. They understood the reality of spiritual warfare. They understood that Herod and others might fight with swords and persecutions and prison cells and all that sort of thing, but not us. Our weapons are not of this world. So actually, the most practical thing they could do for Peter was pray. They understood that we pray to a God who is far more powerful than 100 Herods. As we strive to reach Australia, I hope we believe that. I hope that our prayer is not a token thing and not a token thing in our churches and certainly not our weapon of last resort. If we're going to reach this nation for Christ, if we're going to overcome the roadblocks and the stumbles that will get in the way and the things we think are holding the gospel back, prayer is our greatest weapon in the fight. And we need to give it that priority in our own life and in the lives of our churches. See, the central point of this chapter is that on the one hand, Herod thinks he is powerful. Herod thinks he is in charge with his swords and his soldiers and his prison cells and all of that sort of thing. But in reality, God is the one who is truly powerful. God is the one who is truly in control. And that powerful God has chosen to work through the seemingly weak means of the prayers of his people. And I think to make that point here, as we look at the rescue I want you to notice how God does everything in this story. Of course, you know God, God usually works through human agents. And God is no less sovereign when he works through a human agent than when he doesn't work through a human agent. He's in control of it all. But I think here to make the point, God is in control, Herod is not, you see it in the story. Look with me. Keep in mind as we look at what happens. Verse 6, On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution... Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. So they weren't taking any chances and I think Luke intentionally tells us how strong it all was because he wants you to know Peter didn't slip out because of inattentive guards. And you can't help but be struck, at least I can't, that Peter is sleeping. 
He knows they are killing him in the morning and he's sleeping. That is the calmness and peace that only someone who has the certainty of eternity can have. That is the peace that passes all understanding that only comes from knowing Christ. But let's keep going from verse 7. It says, Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. This is not a human saviour. This is an angelic being. This is God intervening. It says, Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Wrap your cloak around you, he told them, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that what took place through the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. I think as you read that, you cannot help but be struck by Peter's lack of involvement in his jailbreak. He doesn't actually even believe it's happening. He actually, he thinks, I must be dreaming. This is incredible. He just follows and goes along for the ride. And so they come to a gate and just to make the point, sort of finally, they come to the gate and it stresses the gate opened by itself. And then Peter is left there saved, but a little bewildered. This is God at work through his angels. Peter didn't even have to turn the handle. God has answered the prayers of his people directly. And so Peter goes to find the other Christians. And it's just a great moment, I think. They're gathered and praying. He knocks on the door. The servant girl goes there. She's so excited. She doesn't actually open the door. I've never done that to someone, but it's always a first. Anyway, she leaves him outside. She, she rushes in. No one believes her. They say it must be his angel. I don't think that's because they had a particular focus on people's personal angels. It's just that's more likely than that the living Peter is standing at our door. And I love this moment because here they are praying that God would save Peter. God answers their prayer and they can't quite believe it, which is often the case, isn't it? We pray, but then we are surprised when God answers our prayers. I've lost count of the number of times I pray for opportunities to talk about Jesus and then exactly the opportunity I've prayed for comes and I'm not ready because I am a fool. <laughs> and so here they think this is Peter's angel because it can't be Peter but Peter is very much alive. They let him in and look at verse 17. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he explained to them how, look there, the Lord had brought him out of the prison. The Lord has done this. No one else has done this. And that ends Peter's story for a little while. But our story isn't finished because God is not finished with Herod yet. But before we look at that last little scene in the story, a couple of things to think about. And the first is this, we believe in the powerful God. And the powerful God answers prayer. But also in the passage, there's just a little reminder that that is not some magical promise of success. It's not some magical promise that your prayers will always be in line with the will of God. Because as I read this story, I'm always struck by the fact that there must have been a lot of people praying for James as well. But for some reason, it was God's will that James be put to death by the sword. And it was God's will that Peter be saved to keep preaching the gospel. Prayer is powerful, but God's will will be done. But even with that caveat, I find the prayerfulness of these first saints, a real encouragement and a real challenge to me. And I'm especially challenged by the optimism of their prayers, by their audacity. We don't actually, I might be overreading it because we're not actually told what they pray for in verse 5, it just says they're praying for Peter. But if you go back to chapter 4, yesterday's passage, flick back to chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. 
I'll give you a moment to get there. Eugene looked at it briefly yesterday. This is what Peter prays after he was released from prison the first time. And he says, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And I think if, if that was sort of the content of their prayer, if they followed Peter's instructions, they must have play, prayed, please help Peter to stand firm and keep preaching the gospel even if he dies tomorrow. But then they must have also prayed, God, somehow will you do something amazing and free him? And God did it. I'm uh, as conservative as they come. I'm a, I am the quintessential Sydney Anglican that uh, Andrew was talking about the other day. Uh, and sometimes, though, that means, because we're not into charismatic stuff, sometimes that means we can become effective naturalists. All Christians must be supernaturalists. We pray to a God who can do anything. We pray to a God who, who can move mountains. We pray to a God who can open prison doors. As I've studied Acts in preparation for this week, I've been moved to pray bigger prayers, to pray for outlandish works of God to save people, to not just pray for the individuals on my prayer list, but to pray that actually God might do a bigger work in our city and in our nation, to not just pray for incremental growth, but to pray that tens of thousands of people would be saved. To not just pray for my MTS workers, but to pray that God would raise up so many workers for the harvest field that we would flood this nation with evangelists and pastors and teachers and faithful preachers of God's word. Faithful prayer is optimistic because we believe in the God who can open prison doors. Faithful prayer is optimistic because we believe in the God who is more powerful than a hundred Herods. Wouldn't it be something if one of the outworkings of this, one of the outworkings of Reach Australia, was a movement of optimistic prayer, a movement of optimistic prayer for God to work to see hundreds of thousands of people saved in this country. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That is my prayer. One more side point before we go on. It's interesting, that last little comment in verse 17 about Peter it says, then he departed and went to a different place. It's interesting because it's different to what he did back in chapter 4 in yesterday's passage. Uh, here it seems for Peter, discretion is the better part of valour. Uh, the commentaries love debating where he went. You know, did he go to Rome like the Roman Catholics say? Did he go to Antioch and have his interactions with Paul? And that's all very interesting, but I don't really care. Uh, I'm more interested in the fact that the two previous times Peter was saved... Like Eugene showed us yesterday, the two previous times, Peter just marched back in and kept preaching. He walked straight back into the lion's den, but this time he says, I'm out of here. We're not told that he gets a direct word from God or anything like that. It just seems he decides, God has saved me a couple of times. He, he didn't save James this time. I might go and preach in other fields. See, Peter's experience of a miracle doesn't mean he doesn't use his wisdom, if that makes sense. And you see this in Acts, you see it with Paul too, I think. Sometimes it's time to stand and die. Sometimes there is a time to flee. Now, they were talking about dying. I don't think it is ever right 
in our country to not speak and defend the gospel if given the opportunity. It is never right to flee from speaking. Eugene said a great line yesterday, and I hope I get it right. He said, silence has never been a part of God's economy for his people. And I almost didn't want to raise this point because I don't think it is actually that relevant to us uh, because I don't think in our country discretions means we should ever back out of any persecution we're facing. No one is threatening to kill us. We really just need to hear Eugene's message, stand up and be counted. But I raise it because it's in the passage. And I suppose my little side point here is trusting in God's sovereignty must always go together with our wisdom. The, the two don't exclude one another. Uh, trusting God didn't mean Peter had to choose to march into death the next day and go and stand outside the prison he'd been released from and say, Herod, come and release me again because God will release me tomorrow night as well. You see, trusting God's sovereignty doesn't exclude our need to be wise and thoughtful in our decisions. Otherwise, you really can't explain why all of us are not in Saudi Arabia preaching the gospel. Someone needs to go though. I'll leave you to think about that. But now let's go to the last scene in our story. Peter is saved. God is working through the prayers of his people. God's plans are continuing despite Herod's best efforts. Luke doesn't leave it there though. He turns back to Herod in verses 18 to 25. Come there. Herod is understandably upset that Peter has gotten away. So he does what any ancient despot would do. He has the guards all executed. But then, then the story sticks with Herod. It rarely does that in the book of Acts. Even though we're more interested in where's Peter going to go, we're more interested in what happens next for the church. We might think, who cares what happens to Herod? But we follow Herod as he deals off with a problem that is irrelevant to us in Tyre and Sidon. And then we see why. Come to verse 21. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people began to shout, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he became infected with worms and died. Depending on your personality, verse 23 is either your least favourite or favourite verse in the Bible. Uh, I'm on the favourite side. I, love, I could just read verse 23 over and over again. And he became infected with worms and died. Worms ate his guts. I think it's great. Uh, and just like it was all of God with Peter, it's all of God with Herod. No one comes out and stabs him with a sword, it's just God strikes him down. You know when people sometimes say to you, I could never come into your church, God would strike me down. And we say, no, 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 we're about grace. And so here God strikes him down. <laughs> now besides this being a cracking finish to the story, I, I think there's two final points to draw out. The first one I wouldn't preach on Sunday, to tell you the truth, but I'm going to preach it here. And that is that Herod's sin is a warning to humanity. And Herod's judgment is a warning to humanity. God does not tolerate human pride and hubris. God will not share his glory with another. And pride is the essence of sin. Herod is like a worked example for us of Romans 1 and 2. Isn't it? This is a person refusing to give the glory to God, but not just worshipping the creation, allowing himself to be worshipped. This is a warning to us. Herod just got his judgment early. And the warning to us, I want to speak specifically to us in ministry, we need to be wary of pride. We are not immune. 
look at what I've done at St. George North. Look at how I've grown the church. We need to take responsibility. That is a key message of what we've heard this week. And if you came to the the pre-conference, I'm sure you heard it there. That is a key message. Take responsibility for outcomes. Assess what you are doing to make sure you are acting faithfully. Take responsibility for what we do under God, yes. But don't take that glory for yourself. Give the glory to God. My time of confession, I think pride is the sin I confess more than any other. And I don't think I'm alone in ministry. Who am I? Who is Apollos? I plant, he waters, but God gives the growth. Now, I'm not suggesting we would ever claim to be God. I'm not suggesting in your church people say at the end of your sermons, is he a God? <laughs> I'm, I'm not suggesting God will strike you down with worms. If you visit the children's program afterwards and don't wash your hands, he might. <laughs> but, but you get my point. But now the main point, and why this little end of the story is here, the judgment of Herod, as gruesome as it is, is meant to be an incredible comfort to us. That's the main point. Because it reminds us that the end is not in doubt. Jesus wins. If you think about it, we start the chapter with Herod on his throne, throwing his weight around, Peter in chains all the Christians worried and the gospel seemingly in crisis. But we end the chapter with Peter free and Herod rotting. And then verse 24, this incredible verse, then God's message flourished and multiplied. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. This whole chapter, I think, is designed to lead us to that verse. This whole chapter is designed so that we see that stark juxtaposition. Start of chapter, Herod winning, gospel in doubt. End of chapter, Herod rotting, God's gospel multiplying. See, what Acts 12 helps us to see is that God's plans are unstoppable in the end. Sometimes things look grim in the moment. And sometimes the moment lasts a long time. Sometimes Peter doesn't get away like James. Sometimes Christians are killed and there is no angel and there is no miraculous escape. Sometimes the word of God and those who stand up for it are ridiculed and are ridiculed and it never ends. Sometimes your individual church doesn't flourish. Sometimes the Herods seem to thrive and don't get their comeuppance. Herod cops it in this story but all the other tyrants in Acts, they just go on happy ever after. More often we have to wait for the next world to see true justice. But in the end, the message of Acts is that God's will will prevail. God's word, the gospel, will go to the nations. And the reality in Acts, as Eugene showed us yesterday, the reality is that often it is when the Herods are firing that God's gospel grows the most. There's a lot of talk at the moment about how evangelism is harder now because of the hostility to the gospel. I must live in a different country to the people who are saying these things. I really must. If you have the courage to cop a little bit of flack at the moment, I don't think people have been as open to the gospel in 25 years, that's how long I've been a Christian, as they are now. The the 30-something different ethnic groups in my area, half of them, not including the Lebanese Muslims who, who aren't that open to the gospel, but they'll at least talk to you about it, But most of the other ethnic groups just lap up the gospel. 
at least they want to listen. As Iggy said us before, there's, there's no baggage for them. They're, they're, when we say Australians are hardened to the gospel, we're talking about white people like me and we're not Australia anymore. But even the white people like me, and I'm not the hipster latte set, you just look at me to see that. <laughs> um, for, for the first time in my life, the latte set on the project are open to talking about hell. Do you realise that? Thanks to Israel Folau, if you are a Christian, you will get asked directly what you think about hell. And don't stuff it up like so many of, frankly, the Christians I'm reading things from, don't stuff it up by dissembling. Actually say, yes, I believe in hell. I would be going there if it wasn't for my Saviour who died for me. There's your answer. And tell your Christians to give that answer. Tell the people in your pews to give that answer. Tell them to stop worrying about... Who, I don't really care that much about Israel Folau. I care about the fact we get to talk about hell with people and tell them about the Saviour. This is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Make sure your people don't waste it by worrying about, can I agree with Israel Folau or not? And do I agree with everything he says? Just tell them to talk about hell. He's done the hard bit. Now give the answer. <laughs> what a gospel opportunity. Don't stuff it up. And Acts reminds us that God will work through his gospel. It reminds us that there are not good times and bad times to share the gospel. There are just times. God will see his gospel go forth to all the nations. God will save his elect. God will ensure that justice is done, even if it's not in this life. The end is not in doubt. The question of Acts is not, will God see his gospel go out to all the nations? Acts answers that question with a resounding yes. The question is, will you, will we, be faithful and play our part in what God is doing? And the task he has given us is to proclaim Jesus to the nations, which for us begins with reaching Australia. Will you pray with me that God's message will flourish and multiply here in this country? And will you pray that by God's grace, he might just use you and me to see it happen? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we do not pray to a weak God, but we pray to the God who can open prison doors and the God who can move mountains. And we pray to the God who does desire the salvation of people. And Father, we thank you that we have the absolute certainty that you are in control. We thank you that the end is not in doubt, so help us to be fearless, help us to get on with the task of preaching the gospel of this nation, and we pray that by your grace, we might see hundreds of thousands of people in this nation come to know Jesus with us. And Father, help us to be a people of prayer, help us to realise that that will only happen through your work, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.